Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs and chapter number six, the book of Proverbs and chapter number six. We're continuing and now finishing up our series dealing with creation, exploring a little bit about what the Bible says and a little bit about what science says concerning creation, evolution, and things such as this. We're now in a series where we're actually taking public school textbooks and examining what they say. Last week, we took time to see what the textbooks say concerning biology. This week, we're going to be taking time to see what the textbooks have to say concerning the subjects of geology and fossils. Now, to start off, we need to put a basis. And notice with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Proverbs chapter number six. The book of Proverbs chapter number six. And notice with me in verse number 16. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter six and verse 16, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination to him. A proud look a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and to him that soweth discord among the brethren. We could see again in this passage here where God hates lying. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege to open up your word, to be able to explore some things about science. And Lord, I'm asking that you would do something to help us trust you even more, to see that you're a God who does keep his word and a God that is trustworthy in everything that you say, including your word. Help us to respond properly to our vision of whom you are. Thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Now, this isn't the only passage that speaks about that God hates lying. The Bible goes on in the book of Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 5, that a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. John chapter 8 and verse 44, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, and he says that you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. We know that Satan is the one who propagates lies, and these lies go against what God says. So with this in mind, Let's explore a little bit about what the textbooks have to say concerning geology and fossils. Let's start off with the Grand Canyon. What does the textbook say about the Grand Canyon? Now, the Grand Canyon is an amazing feat. It is an amazing thing. If you've never been there, I encourage you to go and see it. It's there in Arizona. It is beautiful and jaw-dropping in its uh, splendor and its majesty. It is just... <laughs> um, amazing to look at. 
And the textbooks have their take on it. They said that over millions of years, the Colorado River has carved out the Grand Canyon from solid rock. So according to the textbooks, that this river has slowly washed away and carved out this canyon. Now that brings us to an interesting idea, that there's an idea of facts and then there's an interpretation of the facts. For example, fact is there is a Grand Canyon. We could all admit that there is a Grand Canyon. However, there are two ways to interpret it, to observe what happened and come to a conclusion. We had spoke about this last week. So the clear observation is that there's a Grand Canyon. Then people draw conclusions. The evolutionist will come to a conclusion that the Grand Canyon was formed slowly by a little water and lots of time. Whereas those from a creationist point of view would see the Grand Canyon and come with the idea that it formed quickly by lots of water and little time. Now what makes the difference of this is that we admit this is what we believe, whereas the evolutionists try to erase the line between fact and their interpretation and try to make the students think that their interpretation is actually fact, as we just saw in that public school textbook. So Here's another textbook that it says the Colorado River has cut through layer upon layer of rock over millions of years. Once again, they're erasing that line between their opinion and what is fact. Here's a college textbook. The Colorado River has cut through all this rock. So this isn't just public school. It's college level. It's everything. This is something that is continually taught. So is it true that this river has cut through all of this rock over millions of years? Well, if you were to dam up the river, one of the things you could see through the topography is that a large lake would form as if you would fill it up. <coughs> we could see through the topography that you could even see it through space that uh, clearly this canyon is a huge thing. If it was dammed up, it would clearly um, backwash. <coughs> Now, again, this is from our interpretation that we believe that the flood washed away everything at once with lots of water and a little time. But let's examine the facts, if you don't mind. What is it that this little Colorado River, did it ca uh, carve this canyon over millions of years? What do facts have to say? Let's not go with interpretation. Let's go with a couple things. First of all, the Colorado River enters into the canyon at the 2,800 foot elevation and it runs downhill. By the way, if you're not familiar, water always runs downhill. That's just how it works. Now, <laughs> it enters into the canyon. However, the canyon goes up to about 7,000 plus feet. So that's a big elevation uh, run up. <laughs> and it runs about 270 miles. It's a big, massive thing. So as we look at this, here are some points to consider with the Grand Canyon. First of all, the top of the canyon is higher than the bottom. We can figure that out with no help, right? Yes. That the top of it is higher than the bottom. In addition, the river only runs through the bottom of it, right? That's where you find it. The river is at the very bottom. The top of the canyon is higher than where the river enters to the canyon by 4,000 feet. So as it enters into the canyon, it enters in about the 2,800 uh, foot mark. So when it runs to the canyon, the rest of the canyon then grows up higher and it grows up to about seven, uh, to the 7,000 foot elevation. That's a difference of 4,000 feet. Yeah. Now, just something of science, just in case you didn't know, water doesn't run uphill. So 
with this, the rivers don't run uphill. That means that in order for it to carve out the canyon, it would have to run uphill for millions of years until it finally carved out the canyon. Well, that doesn't make sense according to what we know about physics and how things work. In addition, there's no delta. Why is that important? That if it slowly ran <laughs> all this debris and carved it out, where's all the debris to be deposited at? There should be some kind of delta where the river is dumping all of this carved canyon, dumping it at. Does that make sense? There should be a delta if this has been doing this for millions and millions of years. There is no delta. And yet, they want to say this beautiful canyon was carved out by this river over millions of years. It does not work out physically inside of science. It doesn't work. The Grand Canyon is best explained by the receding waters from the Genesis flood. That is, the waters receded. They quickly carved out a canyon, which we had saw before with Mount St. Helens, that canyons can be carved out in a matter of hours, given the right conditions. Well, let's take a different subject. Let's take the geological column, something that I was specifically ingrained in as a child, talked about the geological column. In case you're not familiar with it, the geological column will be something like this, where they'll talk about all the different animals that lived and give each of these different eras a name. So in the early 1800s, each layer of rock was given a name, like the Jurassic period, the Cretaceous period, and so on. In addition, they were given an age and an index fossil. What's so important about an index fossil? Well, let's go through here. Now, once again, we understand that there is facts, and then there's an interpretation of the facts. Without a doubt, the fact is, is that Earth has layers of sedimentary rock. We can see that. We can observe it. Now, with it comes two different conclusions. The evolutionist interpretation is that these layers formed slowly over millions of years, while us, as creationists, would believe that the layers are from the flood of Noah and that they were laid rapidly. Both, again, are interpretations of facts. But once again, they like to erase this line between interpretation and fact and teach their interpretation as fact. So, <laughs> now, why is the geological uh, column so important? It is the Bible for the evolutionists. This is something that is necessary for their theory to work. The problem is, is that it can only be found in one place in all the world, and that's the textbooks. It is never found naturally any place in the world. In fact, here's a textbook that's honest with it. It says, unfortunately, there's no column that exists. The geological column does not exist in nature. If the geological column did exist in one location, it would be 100 miles thick. That's a pretty thick piece of rock there that would have all of these layers. It does not exist anywhere. Now, here is the School of Mines of Technology in Rapid City. When I was a young man, I used to go to this place. Now, over in the display where we have it marked, they have an interesting display where they talk about the rock layers. And there at the rock layers, the guide would say that this specific rock layer here is 70 million years old. Now, you could go there and raise your hand and say, well, how do you know that it's 70 million years old? The guide would say that's a good question. We know that it is 70 million years old because of the index fossil that is found there. 
here's a textbook that explains this, that scientists use index fossils to date the rock. How do you know how old that rock is? By the index fossils that's found within that rock. Okay, no problem. So going back to the School of Mines of Technology, going to the other side, you go see this great creature. And the guy there would say, this creature is a hundred million years old. Well, you could raise your hand and say, I got a question. No problem. What's your question? Well, how do you know that this is a hundred million years old? He would say, that's a good question. We know that it's a hundred million years old because of the rock layer that it was found in. So here's a textbook that explains that. The ages of the layers determine the age of the fossils. So you ho know how old the fossils are by the rock layer that's found in. Now, if you haven't caught this, they have what is called circular reasoning. That we date the fossils by the rocks they're found in, and we date the rocks by the fossils that's found in. And around and around you go. Now, how do you know how old this rock is? Because this is where we found this fossil at. Well, how do you know this fossil is this old? Because it was found within this rock layer. That's how they do their dating, by the index fossils. It's taught throughout the textbooks. Here's a textbook that on one page, it says we date the rock by the fossil. The next page, it says we date the fossil by the rock. This is very common within the public schools. How, old, how do we find how old the fossils are? By the rock layer. How do we find how old the rock layer? By the fossils, by what is called index fossils. So how do you tell the difference between a hundred million year old Jurassic limestone and a 600 million year Cambrian limestone? That's a good question. How do we tell the difference between the different rocks? By the index fossils. Now, what is meant by index fossils? Here is an example inside of here, what is called a trilobite. Here's this uh, segment blown up a little bit. A trilobite fossils make a good index fossil. If a trilobite such as this one found in a rock layer, the rock layer was probably formed 500 to 600 million years ago. Now that's a pretty specific age, that if you found something like this, they would say the rock layer that it is found in is 500 million years old. Okay, no problem. So if you found one of these, now <laughs> normally you would just say, okay, they know what they're talking about. That if you found one of these, it is 500 million years old. Now what happens if you find a trilobite? <laughs> that is, hold on, that is squished by a shoe. How do you explain that? That if this creature lived 500 million years ago, how in the world could it be squished by a shoe? Could it be that they're not as old as they say they are? And if they're not as old as they say they are, maybe the rocks that they're found in are not as old as they say that they are? Could that be? Now, some people have given explanations that that's not a human shoe. Maybe it was aliens that came and they squished on it about 500 million years old and it's evidence of alien life. Well, probably we should take the most logical explanation that it's probably not as old as you think it is. Now, going back to the trilobites, trilobites are pretty amazing, and they come in different sizes and different shapes. Now, one thing about the trilobite they've been able to study is that the trilobite eyes have the most sophisticated eye lesions ever to be produced by nature. The eyes of early trilobites have never been exceeded for complexity or acuity. You know what they're saying? Is that this creature that's supposed to be 500 million years old has better eyes than you and I. That's the opposite of evolution, I think. 
that it's getting worse. How come we didn't keep those eyes if they were better? It's going the opposite direction. The trilobite eyes, by the way, are very, very amazing, very complex. Now, again, the textbooks say that if you find a trilobite, that it's probably in a rock layer that's 500 million years old. Well, there may be some problems with that because we know that there's different types of trilobites. We find them all over the place. But do you know that they're still alive? Well, if they're still alive, they can't be 500 million years old, right? How would you like to run into one of these things? They find them still alive. So therefore, it's not a good index fossil if it's something that's still alive. You don't know how old that dirt is. It could be from today all the way down to 500 million years old according to their dating. There's no accurate dating using this as an index fossil. Okay, well, let's see. Maybe this is an exception. Is there other index fossils we could use? Well, here's a grapholite. A grapholite is an index fossil. If you found this specific fossil, you would know that this rock is 410 million years old. The problem is, is that they're found alive today in the South Pacific. So if you find them, perhaps they're not as old as you say they are, especially if they're still alive. Well, that doesn't work as an index fossil. Let's try some more. They buy, the textbooks say that if you find the specific lobe fish, that they lived about 325 million years old, that you would know the rock layer. This specific lobed type fish, what is called the coelacanth. Now, they found out that the coelacanth are still alive today. So therefore, it can't be used as an index fossil. That kind of ruins everything. These great ancient fish. Here they talk about these great ancient fish. A fish caught in time. But yet, they'll still say, even though it's alive today, that it is still your great, great uncle 40 million times removed. How can it be an ancestor of us if it's still alive today? You see, they're stretching, trying to make it work, but it doesn't work as an index fossil, and it just kind of helps make evolution collapse. They do this all the time, trying to date the things. It is not an accurate way to date a rock layer using index fossils. And yet, you'll be taught that dinosaurs lived in the Cretaceous period, which happened about 70 million years ago. Well, if they find dinosaurs still alive, doesn't that mess that up? And we talked about that earlier as well. And so we have these different rock layers. How old are they? Can we tell or are they just guessing? In spite of the fact that the geological column does not exist except in the textbook and the imaginations of those who believe it, people who believed it would have changed their worldview from a biblical worldview of geology to uniformitarianism, meaning that things happen slowly. We covered uniformitarianism last time. And so people who believe in the geological column have to try to rectify that with the view of the Bible, and they do not work together. You either have to accept the geological column or you accept the Bible, but you cannot hold both views. They clash. Let's cover another subject that's found in the textbooks, the origin of life. Could we find things about the origin of life? Can life be produced in a laboratory? Well, let's examine. We here have clearly said that nobody knows, that's a true statement, nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organize themselves into the first living cell. All right, that's a true thing. We don't know how something can organize. Yet the textbooks are going to say it happened. The Bible says that God created everything. 
God clearly claimed he created all life. And the textbooks are going to say something different. The textbooks are going to say that life could have started by itself. So again, two opposing views. Did God create everything or did life create itself? Does life just spontaneously combust? Does it spontaneously uh, turn into life? The textbooks are going to teach the kids that life is formed when all of the oceans were like a big broth of chemicals, basically a big vat of soup. That one day the earth was hot and the waters spurned, the chemicals mixed together, and from this boiling thing of soup that it began to form life. Now, by the way, is your great, 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 great grandfather soup? Well, this is what the textbooks are going to say is that you came from soup. They have articles that talk about this all the time. The hot soup is the origin of life. The origin of species still can't answer this question. Both the origin of life and the origin of major groups of animals remain unknown. That none of them can explain where life came from. Now a scientist attempted to try to produce life in a laboratory, and many of the textbooks claim that he succeeded. A man by the name of Yuri. Students are going to be taught that life evolved from non-living materials, and evidence of it was this scientist who claimed that he produced life in the laboratory. Now, this textbook says that many important events occurred during the Carian era, the most important of which is the evolution of life. That in that geological column, there was a specific time where life finally just appeared within the rocks. Progress from a complex molecules, even to the simplest organism, was a very long process, meaning long ago and far, far away, a fairy tale is being told, that it could not have happened. And yet the textbooks will continue to say the first self-replicating systems must have emerged from this organic soup. Now remember, keep in mind that the evolutionists are saying that this big soup of water, what are the oceans made out of by the way? Water. Good. Keep that in mind. And waters are made out of what two chemicals? Keep that in mind. All right. Now, we talked about Heckel last week, and we're going to talk more about him in the next two weeks. Remember, this is the guy who came up with the idea of embryology, of that life went through the stages of evolution inside of the mother's womb. So we bring him up again. Heckel claimed that spontaneous generation must be true, not because it had been proven in a laboratory, but otherwise it'd be necessary to believe in a creator. You see, he clearly states that I can't believe in a creator, so I have to believe that life is formed from nothing. Well, at least he's being honest that life either formed from nothing or something created it. That's the two choices that we have. So, with the textbooks, they're going to teach that scientists produce life inside of the lab. Let's explore this uh, experiment here that Yuri did. Now, Yuri, as he did this, he did this experiment and the result, according to him, was that it was rich in amino acids. Now, does that mean life? Does that mean life was actually produced? Is amino acids uh, the key to life? Now, in this experiment, <laughs> there's going to be some problems. We know that it wasn't even close. By the way, no one has been able to reproduce his experiment to produce the same results. So if it's going to be a true scientific experiment, it has to be reproducible. And this has never been reproduced. Now, 
Miller excluded oxygen in a reducing atmosphere because life cannot evolve with oxygen present. Now, what did they say life came from? Water, which is made up of? Good. What happens is that any amino acids will try to combine are going to be oxidized because of the oxygen. Because of the oxygen, it won't allow the amino acids that are running free to combine together. They're going to oxidize and make them where they cannot combine with anything else. Life cannot produce by itself in an oxygen environment. All right, so keep that in mind. So here's some problems with that experiment that was done. First of all, ozone is made from oxygen, and ozone is what blocks off the UV light. So if there was no uh, oxygen in the atmosphere, you would also have no ozone layer. This will allow the UV light to come in unfiltered, and by the way, UV light destroys ammonia, which is also part of his experiment of producing life. So, well, that doesn't work. So another one is that <laughs> with this, life cannot be cannot evolve without oxygen. And life, by the way, can't evolve with oxygen. So they're kind of stuck. The earth has always had oxygen, even more than today. And we've talked about this in an earlier segment dealing with the Garden of Eden, that there's even more oxygen found uh, in the fossil record than even what is found today. It was a more oxygen-rich environment, not less. What is the evidence for a primitive methane ammonia atmosphere? They said there was no oxygen. It was made out of methane and ammonia. The answer is there's no evidence, but plenty of evidence against it that there was no atmosphere in early uh, world that had no oxygen, but just methane and ammonia. In general, we find no evidence of sedimentary distribution of carbon, sulfur, uranium, or iron, and that an oxygen-free atmosphere existed any time. So there's never been a time that they could find where there was no oxygen. There's always been evidence of oxygen within the fossil record. It has also been suggested from the time of the earliest dated rocks that Earth had an oxygenic atmosphere. All this is is quote after quote saying, guess what, we had oxygen. There's never been a time without oxygen. The only tread in recent literature's suggestion is that far more oxygen in the early atmosphere. The earth had an oxygen-rich environment, even more of it. Net Yet, in the textbooks, if you notice here, they start talking about the different millions of years, and they start talking about that rocks absorbed the oxygen. Well, there was no oxygen, but somehow the rocks absorbed it. Well, that kind of causes a problem, right? Good. Now... A second problem with the experiment is that it was a filtered out product. It was not how it would happen in nature. It was a very limited experiment that did not reproduce um, what would happen in the primordial world. It was made out of 85% tar, 13% carbolic acid. Both of them are toxic to life and 2% amino acids. So you could see that the toxins far outweighed whatever amino acids might be formed. Now, some problems with this specific thing is that only two amino acids were produced. That's a big problem. For life to exist, you need 20 amino acids. So you didn't have enough amino acids, different amino acids, for life to function. In addition, amino acids, bar with tar and acid, according to this, it's all tar and acid. The amino acids would quickly be absorbed and they could not have formed life. But there are more problems with the experiment. 
Fourth problem is that amino acids are like letters, which are building blocks to make words, to make paragraphs, to make books. Now, amino acids are the building blocks of life. This is why they're saying life was produced in the laboratory. We found the building blocks to life. They didn't found life. They found two building blocks when they needed a whole Shakespearean letter written out. It doesn't work out. He made the equivalent of a few letters when he needed a huge book. By the way, that is a long way from life, saying I found a couple letters from a Scrabble table that fell off. It doesn't work that way. There's some more problems with it. Half of the amino acids he produced were left-handed and half were right-handed. Well, why is this important? Well, in order for us to read a book, for example, a, a simple example, you need the letters facing the right direction. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. You can't process that information. They have to be facing the correct way. So the smallest proteins have 70 to 100 amino acids in precise order, and all of them are facing the same direction. For example, if I dropped a bunch of Scrabble letters and they fell on the floor, if they're not facing the same direction, they're not going to read correctly. They have to be in a precise order. Now, DNA and RNA nucleotides have to be all right-handed. They all have to be facing the same direction in order for it to be read correctly. You can't just scrabble the thing. By the way, all of this shows is that they had a designer to put it in precise order. It could not have happened by accident. It's too complex. It is a very puzzling fact that all proteins that have been investigated obtained from animals and plants and higher organisms and simple organisms, bacteria, molds, even viruses are found to be made of left-handed amino acids, meaning they all have to face the same direction. It's not something that happens by chance. Now, hundreds of amino acids must combine to make proteins, and yet they unbond in water faster than they bond. By the way, where is uh, this so-called uh, life supposed to emerge from? Soup, from water. So in water, they uncombine rather than combined. So it doesn't work out. In addition, <coughs> the oceans are full of water. Now, because of this Brownian motion, which is something in physics, Brownian motion drives them away from each other to uh, equilibrium, not drives them together. If you study chemistry or physics, you would understand about Brownian motion and how Brownian motion causes it. If someone smelled perfume, what would happen? That perfume would diffuse around the room evenly rather than just combine in one place given enough time. That's Brownian motion that causes it to separate. So once again, life is not combining, it's getting further apart. This experiment failed in so many areas of science that it did not produce life. And what it did produce, supposedly, is not life, but just a couple of letters that are not even facing the right direction. Now, if all that is needed to evolve is having the proper molecules in the same place and add energy, well, then I have an idea. Let's do an experiment. Let's see if we can create life. If all we needed was the correct building blocks and you add enough energy, let's put a frog in a blender. Well, if we put a frog in a blender, will something alive come out of it? No, but we have all the materials, right? And we're adding energy. Isn't that energy enough to infuse life? No, it doesn't work that way, does it? Don't try that at home, kids. They'll leave a mess. All right.
let's go to another area. <laughs> According to the textbooks, they say that dinosaurs came from birds or turned into birds. Is that a true thing? Is birds just extra small dinosaurs? Well, let's explore this. According to the Bible, God made birds on day number five. And according to the Bible, God made reptiles on day number six. So once again, the evolutionists are going opposite of what the Bible says. They cannot be coincide. Either the Bible's right or evolution's right. You cannot make them both work. So God made birds in day five. He made reptiles in day six. However, evolutionists will say the dinosaurs are still alive. They're just birds. All birds are is dinosaurs that kind of turn in a different flavor. Okay, that's what they say. Here is the idea of an Archiraptor. Now, this is special to me because I was in the military studying this when it came out, when this bird uh, came out. Scientists unveil the missing link of birds, this Archiraptor. Here we have evidence, finally, that dinosaurs turned into bird. Here is evidence for it. And it made it so much that it made it to National Geographic. They made a whole article about it. And then it was found out shortly after, oops, it was a fraud. It didn't work out. It was a hoax, and it didn't work. And yet, kids are going to be taught that this was a important part of showing dinosaurs turn into birds. Here's a textbook here that says, birds are the descendants of dinosaurs. Is that true? Do we have any evidence that dinosaurs turned into birds? Now, again, do you just put feathers on a dinosaur and push them off? Is that the only change? Is that they... Uh, Birds have feathers and that dinosaurs are featherless birds. Is that the only change? Well, we could be talking a little bit about a fairy tale here, trying to change one thing to another. Let's explore the things that they say as evidence and compare it to science. Here's a textbook here that say that the Arpeotrix, again, a bird that I remember studying as a kid, is found to be 150 million years old. And that we know because it looks like a bird, but it's a dinosaur. All right, so here again, the evolution of birds dealing with the Arpeotrix. Now, paleontologists have tried to turn Arpeotrix into an earthbound feathered dinosaur, but it's not. It is a perching bird. By the way, this is someone who is a world authority on birds who said, it's not a dinosaur. It's a bird. What are you guys thinking? It doesn't even match. It's clearly a perching bird. However, <laughs> why is it that they say that this is a dinosaur that turning into a bird? Well, Arpeotrix itself means ancient wing. And the reason why they say that is because they say that there are claws on the wings of birds. Here's proof. On, mo on birds, you don't see claws. Here is evidence that it was turning from a dinosaur to a bird is that it still has these claws. Well, did you know that birds, some birds still have claws, kind of like an Arpeotrix, that they have these... Um, winged claws that a lot of them don't use them but they do have winged claws stuff like swans and ibises they have winged claws well another reason why they say that the arpeotrix is turning into a from a dinosaur to a bird is that the arpeotrix has teeth so they said this is evidence birds don't have teeth well is that true here's a bird here in ecuador that has 48 teeth so birds can have teeth. That doesn't prove that they're turning from a dinosaur. Well, how about this? 
They found that the Arpiatrix, the famous Arpiatrix fossil that they have, was probably faked as well. And that there's a lot of people now that are convinced that that Arpiatrix fossil is totally faked and they give all kinds of reasons why for it. So you can't even use that as a missing link if it's under controversy and is considered to be a fake as well. But yet, the, dino, the textbooks will say here, bird feathers evolved from the same scales that protected the dinosaurs. So are all birds feathers? Are they just scales that just morphed and changed into something else? Do birds feathers and, um, and scales, are they even the same? Do they even form the same? Well, we know that bird's feathers are designed completely different than scales. Bird's feathers are made to be light so that way the, uh, the bird can have flight. It is designed differently the way that the barbs are completely different than a scale. Now, could we believe that this was actually by chance? Did this form just suddenly? Well, the scientist will double down and say that feathers of scales are both made of a protein by the name of keratin. But that proves a common design engineer, not a common ancestor. By the way, if you're not familiar with keratin, you have keratin in your body. You have your fingernails and your hair. So does that mean that you're evolving into feathers? No, it's just God's using the same protein. That for dinosaur scales and bird feathers, they, they uh, crop out out of the different genome, a different cell structure than together. They just happen to have the same building block material. That doesn't prove that they are the same. Now, something else that's drastically different is the lung system of birds. That most reptiles have a two-lung system. Most of us have two-lung system. But birds, they have a complex lung system that allows them to breathe while they fly. So they can get oxygen. So basically when they're flying, what happens is that the, they just open their mouth and the the air is filling inside of their lungs when they fly. It is a very complex lung system. That means in order for a dinosaur to turn into a bird, its lungs had to develop into a multi-lung system. That's a pretty big change. So think about the changes that we got so far. They want to say that dinosaurs turned into birds, so there had to be a complex change from their scales to feathers. Then there was a complex change from how their lungs work from a two-lung system to a four-lung or to a multi-lung system. The same with the heart. That the, if I remember correctly, that Reptiles have a four-chambered heart, kind of like you have a four-chambered heart, where birds have a three-chambered heart. Well, those are major changes. Those aren't just, I woke up and have a child that's different looking. This is a completely different changes and complex changes that just don't happen. Well, look, I just had a uh, bird baby. Where did this come from? Okay, it doesn't work that way. Now, how can an hyper Archaeopteryx, sorry, be a missing link when fully formed birds were already present. In the same fossil record where the Arpaeopteryx was found to be uh, said to be found, they already had ancient birds that are older than that. It can't be the missing link of turning dinosaurs to birds if birds already existed before it. It just doesn't work. So here are some of the problems with turning from a reptile to a bird. First of all, the lungs are totally different, which I already made a big deal out of that. That is a big 
complex change. In addition, modern birds are found in layers with and lower than the dinosaurs. So how can dinosaurs turn into birds if there are birds that are older than the dinosaurs, according to their Bible, the geological column? Scales and feathers attach to the body differently and develop from different genes on the chromosome. Again, that is a major change. They don't even work the same in development. In addition, birds have a four-chambered heart while reptiles have only three. Forgive me, I switched it around earlier. Birds have a four-chambered heart and reptiles have a three-chambered heart. They're cold-blooded. That is a major change just to develop a different chamber in your heart when you're forming. Then reptiles lay leathery eggs while birds may, uh, lay hard eggs made out of keratin. They are completely different. Reptile eggs are very leathery and squishy. An egg in your refrigerator is not squishy. In addition, there are just tremendous changes between how their tails work, the hips work, the reproductive system. Those are all completely different changes. They cannot turn from a bird to a reptile. And yet the textbooks want to teach the students that birds came from reptiles. It couldn't have happened. In addition, the origin of the bird is a uh, matter of deduction. There's no fossil evidence, and the stages that went through the remarkable changes from reptile to bird, we have no evidence of it. In addition, the experts strongly disagree about what evidence they have, whether it was Arptoraptor or the Opryotrix. Many of the experts who study such things say those are frauds. Well, you can't use them as evidence if they're frauds. Plus, we don't observe it today. Reptiles are not having bird babies. Not even have anything close to bird babies. This is something we can observe. That's what science is, by the way. It's what we can observe and what we can test and what we can prove. And all they have for evidence is stories how it might have happened. They have no evidence, just their own thoughts. This is what we think may happen. This is what could have happened. If you use your imagination, you could see it happening. It also violates observable science, it violates God's word, and it violates common sense. We all can see and understand that birds and dinosaurs are completely different. And it just doesn't switch one to another like a light switch. It is absolutely safe to say that if you met someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. That's Richard Dawkins, by the way, who is considered one of the smartest people alive. And he says that if you believe in creation, you're just stupid. You're wicked. You're something wrong with your brain. Okay, that's nice. Here's another one. Evolution is not a fact. Evolution doesn't even qualify as a theory or a hypothesis. It is metaphysical research program and it's not testable. By the way, there is nothing that has been produced to help mankind or science advancement because of the theory of evolution. And we're going to see that in the next two weeks. It has done more to harm mankind than cause any good benefits to mankind. Now, Jesus says... That thou shall love the Lord thy God with thy heart and with all thy, <laughs> with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Meaning how we think. You know what that means? That means that it is logical and intelligent to believe in a creator. That it's not a fairy tale. You should have evidence and logic of why God exists. And logic and evidence to 
to show that we are not crazy and insane. By the way, that's why we do a creation seminar, just to kind of encourage you that you're not crazy. Amen. That we can trust God in his word and that he is real and that we could believe in him. Here, this evolutionist says, evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the alternative is special creation, and that's unthinkable. At least he's being honest. There is no logical reason to believe in evolution except that you don't want to be under the authority of God. You don't want God to tell you what to do. I suppose that the reason why we left at the origin of species, the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores, meaning that the Bible keeps me from living the way that I want to live. So I'd rather believe in a lie than believe in God so I don't have to let God tell me what to do. You know, that's pretty interesting that they'd be willingly live, believe in a lie just so that way they could try to get away with whatever they want. The Bible speaks about this in Romans chapter 1 that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not convenient. He says later, and for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they shall believe a lie. Here they said, we don't want to believe God. We'd rather believe a lie. And now they believe the lie. They believe in evolution so solidly because they don't want to believe in the Bible. They're against the Bible. They fight against the Bible. And yet, remember that Satan is the father of lies. All he is trying to do is deceive mankind because he hates God and he hates man. He keeps telling them that, yeah, you're going to find evolution. You're going to prove that you're right. Keep doing what you're doing. But all that's going to do is that he's going to destroy humanity and send millions of people to hell because they believed in this lie. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a liar. We can trust everything that he said. We started at the beginning talking about that God hates lies. Why does he hate lies? Because he's not a liar. The things that he say is true and faithful. And the hope of eternal life that God that cannot lie. As we had talked about pretty much all day as a theme, we could trust God in his word. That if he says it, we could believe it. It's one of those landmarks that we can't move away from. That God's word is true. And when we start moving those landmarks, what happened is that there's confusion. There's conflict. And people lose their faith in God. We can trust God. And it's not illogical and it's not imaginary to believe in God. It is very logical and very reasonable that we believe in God. And that we can trust him in his word. That he has much evidence to show that his word is true. And the things that he said is true. That we don't have to shy away from it. Nor do we have to allow people to make us feel like we're stupid for believing in the Bible. That very smart people believe in the Bible. John Newton, or sorry, the guy who um, had the apple fall on his head, went through gravity, what was it? Isaac Newton. There we go, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was a great scientist, considered one of the greatest scientists to live, who wrote great commentaries on the Bible and believed in the Bible and trusted in God. So many scientists believe in God. The guy who invented the MRI machine, right, that you use in the hospitals, he was a creationist. The guy who invented anesthesia, that means puts you under so you could have surgery, he got that from reading Genesis, seeing that God put Adam to sleep. And that 
Uh, if God put Adam to sleep before he did surgery, maybe we should do the same thing. And aren't you glad that they invented anesthesia? That becomes a great kindness, so we don't have to be awake for the thing. You see, very smart and reasonable people believe in God and believe in science. We just don't have to believe in the lie of evolution and be try to feel lesser than when they try to say evolution is science and that we're stupid. No, we're the ones who are on solid ground. They're believing in fairy tales just because they don't want to accept God. So with this, how is your faith in God? Are you allowing God to uh, draw you closer? Now, here's a logic thing. There either is or there isn't a God, correct? And if there is a God, then he either created everything or he didn't create everything, right? And if he did create things... He either created it with purpose or he didn't create it with purpose. And if he created it with purpose, then he either wants them to know the purpose or he doesn't want them to know the purpose, right? If he wants them to know the purpose, then he has to have some way of letting them know what the purpose is, correct? And if he wants them to know the purpose, he wants to give it to them clearly. And God has given us his word because he created us with purpose and he wants us to know what the purpose is and he's given the word so we can know what our purpose is. We have a logical reason to believe in a God and to believe in the Bible that he has given to us, knowing that God can't lie and his word is faithful and true. Now, with that being said, how's your Bible reading? How is your trusting God? Are you in God's word for yourself? Why would I read my Bible? Because I believe God is true. And I believe his word is true. Why wouldn't you read his Bible? Well, could it be a reason like the evolutionists? You don't want God to tell you what to do. You don't want God to get in the way of how you want to live your life. God's word is given to us to help us because God cares for us and because God loves us. The question is, is will you trust him and will you believe him? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.